Right. Well, the clock has just said 1030. Uh, so let's get started and I'll begin with an official uh, welcome. And uh, uh, let me just update everyone on, on what's going on. As you know, the, uh, the elders decided to cancel uh, services today uh, because we had found uh, two members who had tested positive. It's fairly evident that um, they did not contract it from, from being here. And one of those individuals had not been present uh, last Sunday. And the other person, we, we have found out we have contacted everyone who was in the sanctuary last Sunday, and only two individuals um, had been near that, that person. And uh, one has already been tested. They've come back negative. The other one will be tested probably this week. And so we feel very confident uh, that the flock was kept safe. Um, those individuals, by the way, are uh, one really has almost no symptoms. The other uh, just primarily feels fatigue, uh, feels some congestion, but is not needed hospitalization in this uh, seems to be doing well, although certainly you want to keep them uh, in your prayers. Uh, the elders, by the way, will be meeting uh, Tuesday night uh, to make decision about uh, next Sunday. And so you're going to want, if you get any communication on Wednesday morning from the church, you definitely want to check that because that will probably be telling you whether or not there will be services on that Sunday. Um, I'd be surprised if we did not at least have uh, services in the pavilion. Uh, but, the, but, but the elders will make that decision. And, and I will have to note, as, I, as I've done a couple of times already, of just how impressed I am when the elders have gotten together and we have deliberated the matters, given different perspectives and insights, how we've always, each time, have come up with what we think is, uh, a wise decision, which best for the congregation. We're all in harmony with this, and it's it's really it's been an honor uh, to work with these men. Now let me uh, also note uh, coming up. Um, well, tomorrow we'll complete the election for the pastoral search committee. If you still have yet to do that, you still you have tomorrow to, to complete that. If you're having any difficulty with that, um, you know, just call call into the church. Uh, Yvonne will be there. She'll walk you through it. Or you can always just um, tell her over the phone or email her. I helped someone just yesterday. I gave them the names, and then they uh, were sending an email uh, into the office. So however you need to do it, we're, we're happy to help. Now, I will not be here. I begin my vacation uh, tomorrow. I did take a test, by the way, for COVID, and it came back negative. So uh, Ginger and I will be uh, leaving early in the morning uh, tomorrow, and I'll be back in the pulpit, Lord willing, uh, on August the 2nd. Uh, Dr. Joe King will be filling in the pulpit next Sunday. He's the former pastor of the church, pastor of the church for 12 years. And then Reverend John Gordy, who is the Reformed University Fellowship pastor at Valdosta State, uh, will be preaching on July the 26th. Again, if you need anyone uh, to contact anyone, you, you 
for prayer or just any help, uh, call an elder. Uh, if you don't know which elder to call, just call into the church. And uh, Yvonne can get you uh, connected uh, with someone to help you. Now, let me uh, now begin the, the service with a call to worship. And I'm going to uh, read from Psalm 139, which I think is a good word uh, for us. And these are verses 17 to 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Let's pray. We thank you for that good word, our God, as we begin our worship this morning of knowing that we have come to worship you, you but we are already in your thoughts. You always know us. You're always with us, and you're with us even now. We each are in our different homes, but it is by your spirit who actually unites us together. And so we, we know that you are receiving this worship as, as a congregation, as a church family. And we pray that you would uh, receive this worship, that it would take, you would take delight in it. For we come to you through Jesus Christ and we lift up our worship, our prayers before you in his name. Amen. Well, now at this time, we would be singing uh, the first hymn, and I had selected uh, Amazing Grace, and I'm not going to lead you uh, in singing that song, but I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to actually read it. Um, Christians back in the, uh, the 1500s, the 1600s, they used to carry their, their hymn books. They had little small hymn books that they would carry around with them, and the hymns were written as they were originally written to be, they were written as poems uh, before the music was there, and they would use these for devotions. And that's something I want to encourage you to think about doing is having a hymn book uh, at home that you can regularly go to, daily go to, and simply take take the uh, the hymns, uh, just go go through them consecutively, however you feel so led, and read them and see if you don't. We aren't able to pick up something a little bit different as you hear those words. So I'm going to read to you the hymn we would have sung, and I'm going to read the full hymn uh, of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, to save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now think of this next line. It's very important to you today. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. And the next two lines you might not be as familiar with, but listen to them. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. 
When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. It's a beautiful words. Let's uh, now we're going to do the uh, confession of faith. And this would have been uh, a communion Sunday, uh, as you know. And we'll just uh, observe communion Sunday, uh, the second Sunday of August. So we'll look forward to that time. But I'm going to read the confession uh, that, again, that we've always have used during that time. It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism and is questions one and two. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. And then, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. I'm going to turn down to the Lord in prayer and begin by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, our Father, we do thank you that we come as your children to our heavenly Father. That you live in heaven does not mean that you are far from us. Indeed, you are here uh, within our very being through your Holy Spirit. But it does tell us that you are not bound uh, to this earth. You are not bound here to all the troubles, all the chaos that continues on in this world does not affect you, but you are above it all. And even so, you have taught us in your word that you are with those who are contrite in spirit. And so we come to you in Jesus Christ, your son. It is because he did not hold on equality with you, something to be grasped, that he did not hold on to his place in heaven as something where he, he could not leave, but he was willing to take on our flesh to come here upon this earth, and not only to come here, but to to dwell among us, and not merely to be among us, but to serve us. The great King, our very Creator, came to this earth to serve us, and not only to serve us, 
but to go upon a cross and to die for us. He who is the eternal one, who pure spirit, God the Son, came upon this earth and died for whom? Well, as your word has told us, to die for his enemies. Our Father, this is, this is such wondrous love. And we thank you to, to know this and knowing that no matter what's going on today, with a pandemic, with, with all the turmoil taking place in our country, no matter what is going on, we are in your hands. We are your children. You care for us. You love us. And just as we have confessed in this confession of faith that all things, all things are working for our salvation, for our good. Well, we thank you for this knowledge. All the more then may we hallow, may we honor your name. We pray, our Father, that we would honor you by uh, the way that we serve your kingdom. We thank you that your kingdom came through Jesus Christ, and we pray for his return when your kingdom will be consummated. But meanwhile, we pray that we, ourselves as your children, will be good servants for your kingdom. That our allegiance above all things will be to you, to our King, Jesus Christ. May we always be thinking in those terms. That whatever, again, is happening today, whatever is happening in our nation, Above all, we are always thinking in the ways that we respond, how we are going to honor our king. How is what we're going to do serve the cause of your kingdom to help bring others into that kingdom? Give us that mindset. Cause us to do your will as it is done in heaven. Ever thinking of our neighbor, ever thinking of how to glorify you ever thinking of how to love our God, how to love our neighbor. We pray that you would provide for us this day what we need to do that very thing, to serve you well. We pray that you will feed us with your word. We pray, our Father, that we will take it in, feed upon it, be nourished by it. We pray, our Father, as well, that you would provide for us what we need physically, and we lift up. Uh, our family members uh, who attested positive for the COVID, and we pray for their safety, for their health, their well-being. We pray for protection from all others in, in, our, in our flock, in your flock, and pray for protection. We pray that for our community. Our Father, we, we lift up our nation as the cases have surged yet again, and we pray for your protection of our neighbors throughout this country and truly throughout this world. We've been made to be seen how helpless we are, how little control that we do have of our lives and of this world. So all the more we we turn to you, you who has complete control. Our Father, we pray for the forgiveness of our sins, of our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And when we add that last phrase, as we forgive our debtors, we so we appeal to you to give us the same spirit that you have, that we will easily forgive those whom we perceive have offended us. For so much of the offenses we think we have received are not offenses at all. 
But we pray, our Father, that we would have such love that covers a multitude of sins, that we would be as such persons who do not hold grudges, do not hold resentments, that we would be such persons in particular who will be as our Father who loves your enemies and is merciful to your enemies. May we be the same. We pray that we not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. Protect us from Satan, who desires our downfall. Protect us from the world that uh, is so often too much with us, and lures us with its temptations, or because of the turmoils, causes us to be fearful and, and sin out of that fear. And protect us from ourselves, from our own weak flesh. We thank you all again for what we know that we are in the hands of you and of our Lord. And that we have received the forgiveness of sins because of the work that he has done. And we praise you that what belongs to you is the kingdom and the power and all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we're going to, I hope uh, if you have your Bibles or if you're using the church bulletin that you will turn to Hebrews. We're continuing along in that. We're getting in chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Now I'm going to just, as you know, my... Uh, the way I typically do is I don't read the scripture at the beginning, but I'll go through all of the scripture as I go through the uh, the text. Well, as I one thing we've mentioned, and as we know, we're about to form a pastoral search committee. And one of the uh, first actions of that committee that they will have to do is they'll have to meet together and they'll they'll craft the the qualifications that they expect of uh, of the pastor what his credentials will need to be, what his skills will need to be. And um, and in a sense, that is what our author is doing in our text today. He's going to be discussing the qualifications that are expected of a high priest, and then he's going to measure how Jesus stands up against these qualifications. So let's see what he comes up with. There are going to be two basic credentials for a high priest. One has to do with how one obtains that position of high priest, and the other has to do with the character of the priest. Now, both credentials actually appear throughout our passage, so I'm going to kind of separate them so we can look at them uh, in order. We're going to consider, first of all, how the high priest obtains uh, his, how he obtains his position. So look with me in verse 1. I'm just going to read that first uh, phrase there. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Now our author elaborates what this means about being appointed in verses 4 through 6. So go down to me with me now to verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So what he's noting here is that God directly named Aaron to be the first high priest. 
And for that matter, he also named the, the son of Aaron who would follow him. And I believe then he actually named uh, the next priest as well, who would be the, the grandson of Aaron. Now, the direct naming, it did not continue, but it would be understood that by whatever means was used to choose the next high priest, that was the result of God's appointment. No one presents himself as a candidate for the high priest. No one runs for the office. No one presumes to just take this honor for himself. All right. Then what about Jesus? Well, look with me in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. So God the Son, think about this, he did not up there in heaven turn to God the Father and saying, you know, I'd like to take that high priest title for myself. Now, if anyone could, I mean, surely it would have been Christ. But he did not do it. He would not exalt himself. And so the author goes on to write, What was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that first quote is from Psalm 2, and the second one is from Psalm 110. And our author only has one point to make for now. Each quote is that of God the Father speaking to God the Son. And in each instance, he is designating a title for him. And so in Psalm 2, he is designated uh, the Son as, well, as Son. Now, you ask, well, isn't he already the son? Well, yes, but this is a designation of the title son, who is heir of God's house. Now, in Psalm 110 comes the designation of a priest, but not only a priest, but a priest forever. And this quote introduces that mysterious phrase after the order of Melchizedek. And indeed, He's going to repeat it again in verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Later in chapter 7, most of that chapter will be devoted to fleshing out the meaning of behind that phrase and understanding of who Melchizedek was. But for now, the focus is on God doing the appointing. And so our author impresses upon his readers that Jesus Christ was directly appointed by God to be high priest. And the second qualification is about character. And that particular characteristic is that he has to be empathetic uh, with the people whom he represents. So let's go back again to, to verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, we've noted before in previous passages how important it is that our representative uh, is sympathetic with us. 
if he were not, well, he might not go to bat for us. Or if he does, even if he does so, he'll do it in kind of just a perfunctory manner. Well, the point here in this passage about empathy is how the high priest relates to his people. Namely, then, that he deals gently with them. Now, his job is to offer gifts and sacrifices for his people's sins. These are the sins that they have committed ignorantly, which in turn has led them somewhat astray. And so the priest needs to be understanding when they come to him. They don't need a priest who is wagging his finger at them each time that they come back. Now, the reason he should be understanding is that he, too, has his own failings. Okay. He, too, is beset with weaknesses. But then there's a catch here. There's a little bit of a problem. If the high priest is tainted with sin, how then can he go before God with his people's sins? Well, we're told how he does so in verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So this very human high priest, he must first acknowledge that he too has sinned, and he must make the necessary sin sacrifice for his own sins before he can go into that temple or into the Holy of Holies particular, excuse me, for the sins of his people. A sinful man cannot step into the holy temple in the presence of the holy God without atonement being made. All right, then. How well does Jesus meet this requirement of identifying with his people? Well, again, we already know about Jesus' sympathy. Our author had impressed this point back in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And he stated it again in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So all previous high priests could be sympathetic because, well, they also sinned. They also needed to offer sacrifices for themselves. Well, Jesus is sympathetic, not because he sinned, but because he faced the same temptations and the same conditions that that lead people to sin. Now, how did he avoid sin? Well, by offering up something else. Look with me now in verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, commentators believe that uh, our author here is referring specifically to Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. And, of course, in that time, he, he, was, he showed very strong emotion and, and had tears. Indeed, he dropped blood, uh, tears that were like blood. Well, certainly, that is the peak event. But I can't help but think 
So that phrase, all the, the days of his flesh, included all the days of his flesh here on earth. I mean, after all, think back to, to Jesus early on experiencing 40 days in the wilderness. For 40 days, he was tempted. And we know that more than once attempts were made on his life. We know that he had to have offered many prayers, many supplications before we get to Gethsemane. Regularly, we're told that he went off alone to pray. Well, whatever the case, the point here is that Jesus relied not on his divine nature to withstand the suffering and temptations, but rather on the same thing that is available to us all. He relied on prayer. He prayed to his Father in heaven. And he was heard by his father for the very reason of his attitude toward his father. And that is one of reverence. You know, that's the attitude that's mostly uh, highly valued in the Old Testament. It's often referred to as the fear of the Lord. It is a fear that one delights in. Because in this fear, through it, It discerns the majesty and the holiness of God. And such a fear or such a reverence leads to a delight in obedience. And so it was with Jesus. Although he was already a son, the son of God, he learned the obedience of one who faces trials and the temptations as a human. Again, our author spoke of this back in uh, chapter 2. Verses 10 and 13, that experience of facing trial and temptation without giving in to sin, that is what perfects him into being a merciful and righteous high priest. Now, it's good to be merciful, but it is essential to be righteous. Excuse me. So our author goes on in verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now again, we'll note here, critical distinction between the high priest Jesus and all the other high priests is that he never sinned. No sacrifice needed to be made on his behalf as he was already the perfectly righteous. And it not only excused him from the necessity here of making sacrifices, but it qualified him to become the sacrifice for his people. And so as such, he became the source of eternal salvation once and for all. And that will be discussed more in chapter 9. So let's summarize here. Jesus more than meets the qualifications for high priest. More than any other earthly priest, he was directly appointed for the job by God the Father. More than any other priest, he empathizes with his people and gently deals with them. And much more than any other high priest, he has proven to be perfectly righteous. Now, we let's think now about lessons that we can gain from this. 
And we have already in previous messages, we've already considered how Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, how he is an effective high priest. Uh, we know that he sympathetically serves us, that he effectively intercedes for us. But now let's consider other lessons then from this passage. And I can think of two in particular that comes at least to my own mind. And the first is this. I want us to note how it is God who does the appointing of who the high priest will be. Now, the priest does represent God to the people. But he also represents the people to God. And indeed, one might argue that that's the more critical role to play. That's the reason why it is so important that the high priest be sympathetic uh, toward his people. Well, even so, the people have no role to play in who their representative will be. Now, why is the high priest, excuse me, not elected by the people? Well, the reason is simply this, because what God wants, who God wants, is what matters. Only whom he allows into his presence may do so. Only how he wants to be approached and to be worshipped is what he accepts. Consider the implications. Let's, we're going to apply this but to worship. You know, the prevailing philosophy for worship today in our society is that worship is, uh, well, they, they refer to it as like the worship experience is to be tailored for what the worshipers like. Now, I want to be careful here. We certainly are to take into consideration what communicates best to worshipers, what enhances worshipers to give the due adoration to God. But it is easy to cross the line to becoming people-focused rather than God-focused. Indeed, one way that you can see this is how oftentimes churches will advertise themselves. They might promise a dynamic or an exciting uh, worship experience. In other words, what they're doing is that they're promising the attending what he or she will get out of coming to worship. Now, as important it is for worship to be meaningful for the worshiper, worship is for God. And what matters is how God wants to be worshipped. In Presbyterian circles, we refer to the regulative principle. And what this means is that worship is to be regulated by the principles found in Scripture. Whatever we include, or for that matter, whatever we omit, must be proven directly from Scripture, or reasoned from Scripture. Now, to be sure, there is still plenty of debate among Presbyterian churches, but even so, the debate still revolves around what pleases God as revealed in Scripture. And I think that if Christian worshipers would embrace that principle, that what matters in worship is what pleases God, then a number of worries, a number of debates would really simply go away. Worrying about 
whether we should have multiple services that appeal to different worship styles so we can please all the different people. Or maybe we need to adjust the length of worship so that it's not so long for people. Or maybe the time of worship so it's more convenient for them. You know, worrying about all these things as if worship is little more than an evangelistic tool. Indeed, much of the prevailing view of worship now is that worship needs to be designed so that it appeals to the unchurched. So they regard worship as an evangelistic tool rather than it being the duty of God's people to offer him honor. Now, I think that the more oriented we are toward what pleases God, then the less attention we will give to what pleases ourselves. Now, but the irony of this is is this. The more attention we give to what pleases God, the more impact it really is going to have on us, the more meaningful it is going to be. Because it takes us deeper, causes us to think more deeply about our God and how to please him. Now, a very practical way I want us to think about, particularly right now in this time period, this is the time of the coronavirus. And, and look, it is appropriate for those who are remaining home, out of safety, to do so. And indeed, as you know, I'm having this very service here from uh, my studying because the elders have determined that that is what is safest uh, for their people on this day. Okay. It's, uh, it's, it's appropriate what we're doing now of having multiple services so that we can have fewer people at each service, again, making it safer for everyone. But we need to be careful during this time that we do not slip into laziness. Watching worship from home, it's very convenient, isn't it? Enough so, it can become so convenient that it becomes little more than, well, than watching a TV show. And so pray about this. Pray about this before you begin worshiping at home. Um, as you're watching from home, let me ask you this. Are you watching at the time that you would have been in church? You know, that would have been the, the 1030 hour. So that you are, in a sense, at least spiritually, with the congregation live. Or do you just wait till, you know, whatever's a convenient time for you? Think about how you're dressed. Are you dressed as you would for worship before God? Or just as you would might just watch a movie at home. You see how easy it is to fall into this kind of unthinking, kind of just what pleases me pattern. So we need to be careful during this pandemic period. Now, the other lesson, the second one, is more focused on us. Now, our author describes the people. Did you pick up on how he described the people that the high priest serves as ignorant and wayward. And this is not a put down of them. 
not saying, well, they're stupid or these are people who have left the faith. Rather, he's simply giving a depiction of the ordinary Christian. You see, our problem for most of us is not so much that we are hardened rebels, but simply that we find living a perfect life hard to do. Now, there might only be ten commandments, but there are limitless ways to break those commandments. And and I think again, it's it's not that there are it's not the blatant temptations that keep leading us astray. Rather, it's the seemingly small stuff that subtly can move us off the right path. Indeed, in the very matter of worship, whether you're worshiping at home, whether whether you've come into the sanctuary, we can easily falter and unknowingly dishonor our Lord. So what are we to do? Well, we're to give thanks. We're to give thanks for our high priest who gently deals with us. Here's the tactic of our enemy. He tempts us to sin for this particular reason. Look, he can't he can't steal our souls. Not that we now that we are in our, our father's hands. But what he can do by tempting us to sin causes us now to be fearful of God and to hide from God, just as our parents, Adam and Eve, did. We worry, don't we, after we have sinned that that God is now offended, that he is angry with us. We might feel that, you know, Jesus is disappointed in us, that that he'd be grudges having to intercede for us. We can kind of picture him saying, look, I, I did this for you, I died for you, and this is how you repay me. Well, take comfort. Your righteous high priest He understands you, and he does not begrudge interceding for you. His sacrifice was not only sufficient for you, but it was a guarantee for you that he'll never stop loving you, that he will never give up on you. You think about this. If he loved you enough to go to the cross for you, you can rest assured that he loves you enough to stay with you. And so the most effective defense against your enemy is to trust in the love and the faithfulness of your high priest. And trusting in Jesus is the one sure thing in life. You know, the track record of the high priest was spotty at best, especially in the time of Jesus. I mean, the recent priests... In those days, were not sympathetic toward their people. They were appointed by uh, Roman governors. They were not nearly righteous, indeed, of anything. They were just the opposite of being righteous. But the point here is that all men will disappoint, no matter how hard they try to, to do and how good they try to be. No one can. No one will fulfill their duties to love perfectly or to live perfectly. But Jesus has. And he will always. You can count on him. You know, there's a line that puzzles the, the commentators here in this passage. It's the one that speaks of Jesus praying to him who was able to save him from death. Well, puzzling part is, 
God did not save Jesus from death, did he? So how can it be said then that his prayers were heard? Well, evidently, Jesus did think that he was heard. Think about this. I mean, how else did he move from the obvious turmoil that he was in while he was praying Gethsemane? He moves from that to the calm, self-controlled man that his enemies encounter following that prayer. Now, something, something greater than escaping physical death took place. A better answer to the request of Jesus to have that bitter cup removed from him was given. Jesus may not have escaped death, but he certainly escaped fear of death. He may not have avoided death, but he certainly won victory over death, didn't he? The crucifixion led to the resurrection. The burial in the tomb gave way to the ascension into heaven, where now he is serving as our high priest. Remember, in Jesus, life wins over death. Love wins over enmity. Joy wins over despair. Let's pray. We do praise you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, whom you appointed to be our priest, who himself was sympathetic to us, remained a righteous high priest, is ever now and forever our high priest interceding for us. We give you praise for him. And may we always look to him, however many times we falter knowing that he does not begrudge interceding for us, that our forgiveness has been won once and for all upon that cross, that we are always to keep coming back, keep coming back, always turning to our Lord Jesus, knowing that we will find mercy and grace. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for uh, joining in uh, for worship. And let me now uh, give to you uh, the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.